Our text this morning will be Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. and He was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded. Who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who needed healing. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You find them something to eat. They said, We have no more but than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the crowd. And they all ate. And were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would bless us by your word. That you would cause it to take deep root in our hearts that you would cause our lives to be changed, O Lord, by the power of your word and spirit. This we ask 
In Christ's name, amen. Well, some of you have had the experience of being an intern. You know, that wonderful time and experience in which you get to go into a a new business and find uh, a new office to work out of and new people to meet. You get that wonderful experience of making and pouring coffee for everyone, cleaning shredders, doing all of the jobs that no one else wants to do because, of course, you're the intern. But in in reality, being an intern is somewhere between that stage of school and a professional life. It is more than just work experience. It is an opportunity that we have to take what we have learned and to use it in the real world. To take the things that have been taught to us and see that they apply in real world and work situations. This is important because oftentimes we're not sure how to apply what we know. This morning we see the disciples going through their first internship. There are two stories here. One of Jesus sending out the apostles and one of feeding of the 5,000. But they're related because they both relate to how the disciples begin to understand what it means to minister in the kingdom of God. This is an opportunity that they have to put into practice what Jesus has been teaching them. And it is an opportunity for them to learn where true life and trust is found. And so this morning I would like us to see three things from our text. (coughs) First, we will see that the disciples are sent out by the king. They are sent by the king of the kingdom. And then secondly, we will see that they are tested by the king as Jesus puts them in a situation in which they have to apply what he has taught. And then third, we will see that as a result of this test, they and we see the sufficiency of the king himself. Sent by the king, tested by the king, and the sufficiency of of the king. Well, let's begin then in verse 1 and see as Jesus prepares the disciples to go out. He called the twelve together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And so what we have here is Jesus starting the next phase of his ministry and the building of the kingdom of God. Up until this point, the disciples have been exactly that. They have been followers, and they have been learners. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of another, and to sit at his feet and learn. Up until this point, Jesus has been doing all of the teaching. Jesus has been doing all of the healing. And now Jesus is about to start their internship in the kingdom of God. He calls them together and he prepares them and he sends them out 
to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And the very first thing that we see is that Jesus is the one who equips these disciples. He calls them, he gives to them, and he sends them. You see what Jesus does here. There are a whole large group of disciples. These 12 are just 12 of thousands who follow Jesus from place to place. But he is taking these specific 12 and making a difference between them and the rest of the disciples. As we will see in a moment, he actually gives them a new and unique title. They become the 12 apostles. He's formally setting them apart to this work. Who does this sort of thing? Who calls people out of a midst? Who sets people apart for the work of the kingdom? Isn't it God? Isn't that what the Lord exactly does with Abraham? With Israel? And with the people of God themselves? He calls them out of a greater mass of people and He fits them for ministry and He equips them, calling them to be His. Jesus then begins to give to them. You see that Luke describes, He gave them power and authority over all demons, and to cure diseases. Jesus isn't just calling them and sending them. No, He's also equipping them, giving them what they need to go about the task He has for them. He is readying them for their work with ability. But He also is giving them a promise. Do you see the implicit promise here in what Jesus says? He's telling them that they will have power, that they will be successful that they can cure diseases. Who does this? Who readies us with the ability that we need and the gifts that we can use? Who gives us His promise so that we know that we can trust that things will work out not from what we can do, but from the giver? Well, of course, again, that's God. And so in two different aspects here, we have our Lord Jesus Christ not only equipping the twelve, but He is showing them and us that He is God Himself. There is a third thing. He sends them out. Now, you have to understand, this is more than the ancient equivalent of printing out for them directions from Google Maps. This is not, we'll go to this town, and then go take a left at that town, and then go straight this way to the other town. No, it's much more than that. When Luke uses this word, it's very specific. It is a a commissioning, a divine commissioning. They are being set apart for a purpose and being sent out to effectuate that purpose. This is the way that Luke uses this word to send. We saw it in Luke chapter 1 and verse 19 when the angel Gabriel said, I have been sent to bring you tidings of good news. We saw it in chapter 4 and verse 18, when Jesus quotes the Old Testament and says that He has been sent by the Father. We see it again in chapter 7 and verse 27, when again we have an Old Testament prophecy that Jesus is the one who was sent. And we will see it again In chapter 11, where Jesus defines His existence as the one who was sent 
by the Father. Who does this kind of sending? It is God. He sent Jesus. He sends the apostles. And He sends you. He is the one that equips His people. And He equips them with a power and an authority here. Do you see this? He gives them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And these things are related. You see, power must be linked to authority to be properly used. And authority must have power to get done what it is supposed to do. If we have power without authority, we have tyranny. If we have authority without power, we have weakness and helplessness. And so Jesus here gives to the apostles both power and authority. He gives them the power to do the tasks that are before them, and they do it in His name and authority. Their authority was unique. There were none like them before. There have been none like them since. They have been specifically commissioned and sent out by Jesus Himself. That is the definition of an apostle. You may flip through a magazine or go through the channels on the television and see someone who calls himself an apostle. But unless he has been sent out on a divine mission in the kingdom of God by the person of Jesus Himself, he's not an apostle. You see, this is a unique mission in the building of the kingdom of God. The power that the disciples have to become apostles is from the Word of God and the Gospel and the Holy Spirit. That is why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. And so the apostles are sent out and sent out on this mission. What is the mission they are sent on? Well, at first glance it would appear that it is to cast out demons and to heal. After all, those are unique gifts. Those are spectacular gifts. I mean, could you imagine if you had the spiritual gift of walking through a cancer ward and healing people? Everyone would want to interview you. Everyone would want to talk to you. Everyone would want to see you. It's spectacular. Could there be any higher calling than that? Except perhaps if you could go into the lives of someone who is burdened down by oppression and demonic activity and free them. Can you imagine how excited the apostles must have been? We're going to go out and cast out demons. We're going to heal people. This is unbelievable. You can imagine that that's where their focus would be. It's exhilarating. But it's not really the real mission. Is it? You see, in Luke's account, it's actually something of an afterthought. You see, Jesus sends them out to do what? To proclaim the kingdom of God. Oh, and by the way, to heal. Because as a matter of fact, that healing will be done in the context of proving that the kingdom of God is true and is in their midst. Their main mission is is to proclaim the kingdom of God. Their main mission 
is to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Heralds, if you will, trumpeting the coming of the kingdom. Do not lose sight of the order in which Luke describes their sending commission. They are in charge of the kingdom. Now, what is the kingdom of God? Well, what the kingdom of God is not is a certain place. You know, if we wanted to, we could go and drive several hours and we could find the exact spot where the nation of the United States ends and the nation of Mexico begins. It's a line of demarcation, a distinction between kingdoms. Now, we don't always take that very seriously. As as I grew up near the Canadian border, we sort of thought of Canada like the 51st state. We would just drive over. These were the days before you needed passports. But you see, whether it's clear or whether it's vague, earthly kingdoms are set up with demarcation lines. Not so the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a state of being. It's much more than a state of mind. It's an entire state of being. The kingdom of God is where God's rule and reign holds sway. Regardless of location. The kingdom of God is found in America. But it's also found in Canada and Mexico. It's also found in Africa. It's also found in Asia. It is everywhere that God rules through His people. That is why the Bible can speak of the kingdom of God expanding across the globe from sea to shining sea, wherever the sun shines. It is why the Bible promises that the kingdom of God will envelop all of the earth as our Lord redeems His creation. These twelve apostles are given authority and power by Jesus that they might declare the authority of God. They are to go out and say, the kingdom of God is among you. And at its core, this is what Christianity is. It's not about laws that we pass. It's not about how we dress. It's not about what music we listen to or what books we read or what speech we use. All of those things may be markers that the kingdom is present, but what biblical Christianity is, is the rule of the living God in His creation, having been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the kingdom. Jesus tells them to go out, and He tells them to be very careful as they go out, the manner in which they are to preach this kingdom, is very interesting. They're not to take a staff or a bag or bread or money, and they're only to take one tunic. Does this mean that we should immediately go into our bylaws and say, every man can only own one sports coat? And ladies, sorry about the purses. No. This is not a description of how Christians should dress or what they should carry at all times. What this is, is this is Jesus' way of setting the stage for the kingdom of God to be announced in a place that is completely ignorant of it. To declare the kingdom has come. And you see, what had happened in these times is you would have wandering philosophers who would go and teach. And they would bring 
a whole train full of stuff so that they always had what they needed and wanted. And they would expect other people to take care of their stuff. And then they would go into a home, and if the home's food wasn't to their liking, they'd go find another place. Oh, we need to stay down the street. They serve pot roast. Oh, we need to go up, down the alley. That bed is far less lumpy than the place we're staying now. But you see, if Jesus is telling His apostles to declare that the kingdom of God is at hand and that all that matters is the Lord, you cannot act as if everything you need is vital. You must leave that behind. You do not lead with your comfort and your needs and your desires. You must lead with the declaration of the kingdom. And this is something that you and I must do now. It doesn't mean we sell everything we own, but it must mean we do not lead with everything we own. That does not define us. Our needs and desires are not the topics of our conversation. It is the kingdom. The second thing we see here in this text is a test that comes as the apostles are tested by the king. First they're sent, and now they're tested. We might ask ourselves this question as the apostles go out, who has the need? Who needs help here? Well, at first glance, again, the obvious might seem easy. Verse 6 seems to say to us that the people who need help are the people out there, the people in the villages. I mean, can you imagine someone suffering under the oppression of a demon? Can you imagine someone with a debilitating disease? How much they would need and want help. And then can you imagine the success that would come to the apostles and how exciting that would be as they heard demons beg to be given into animals. To hear the joy of a father when his child had been healed. Can you imagine what that would do to the apostles as they see this success and they know that they can help others? They're very eager to report their success, aren't they? Look at verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. Their success is wild. It is so wild that even the ruler of the land, Herod, wants to know what is going on. He probably wants a piece of the action. The success is not just in the countryside, it is throughout all of Galilee. And if we are careful, we will see shadows of this in our own hearts. Isn't that how we can view our life and the church and Christianity as our job to help other people out there who aren't as put together as we are in here? And our job is to fix them and to make them as together as we are. And when we do that, we're giving God a helping hand. You see, this is the temptation When you have this kind of success like the apostles had, you can imagine them coming in and reporting back to Jesus. We even hear reports that they think John the Baptist is back alive. They think Elijah is here. 
fulfilling the prophecy that the end times have come because Elijah, who has never died, has returned according to the promise of Malachi 4, verse 5. And then the apostles begin to do what you or I might do after having had a marvelously successful time. You know, it would be like if you were at the office and given a task and you managed to bring it in ahead of time and under budget. You might just happen to wander past your boss's office. Oh, I just wanted to give... Just a brief word. I did finish that project. Oh, how did it go? Well, it was done ahead of time, under budget. No big deal. Right? Or perhaps, ladies, after an especially hard week of schooling, dad comes home. Well, how are things going? Well, you wouldn't believe it. The kids have behaved just perfectly. The house is clean. The homework is done. This is unbelievable. Wow. And then what do you do when this euphoria hits you? Well, you plan a vacation, of course. Right? Everything's in place. We deserve a break today. We deserve a rest. And that's exactly what the apostles do. They come to Jesus and they say, you know, we've worked really hard for you, Lord. I think we healed 342 people. And I think we cast out 148 deacons, uh, demons. Deacons. Sorry, deacons. Can we get a break here? And Jesus says, sure. And so they begin to go to a desolate place where people won't bother them. And Luke describes it quite quickly, but if you have an opportunity, you might want to look at Mark's account in chapter 6. All of the Gospels describe this scene that we are seeing. And what's happening is, the picture is, is that Jesus and the apostles begin to go off somewhere to get a break. The apostles have said, we don't even have a chance to eat. They're bothering us so much. And as they start going, people see them going. And surprise, they start following them. They start running after them. They start going into homes and pulling friends out and saying, let's go, come on, there's Jesus. You can imagine the apostles, they're tired, they want a break, they're looking over their shoulders. Wait a minute, there's a dozen people. There's a hundred people. And they finally get to the desolate place. And there's about 10,000 people there. Now, can you imagine that? They wanted this well-deserved rest. You can imagine what they might want to do. Somebody put up a fence. Keep them on the other side. But what does Jesus do? Do you see? Jesus continues their internship. He says, what you do is you minister to these people. Jesus has compassion, Mark says. He sees them and he begins healing them. He doesn't take a break. He doesn't worry about his rest. He begins to see those who are in need. And as this continues and rolls on, another need presents itself. The day wears on and there are Thousands of people, 5,000 men, Luke tells us, which meant that when you add women and children, we're probably talking about at least 10,000 people. A good size crowd at a basketball stadium. And now, it's getting to be dinner time. 
And you can imagine the apostles are getting nervous. Lord, we don't have this kind of food. We only wanted to be out here by ourselves. We only brought enough for us. What do we do now? You see, there's a challenge here that comes immediately to them. Don't lose sight of the context. This challenge of feeding thousands of people comes to them at exactly the time in which they think they are most able. Right? They've had all kinds of victories. I mean, if you think about it, what's flipping a hamburger compared to casting out a demon? And so Jesus tests them. He tests them with the question, who can provide? You see, the success has gone to the apostles' heads, and what they do is they come up to Jesus, and in verse 12, hear the language they use. Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Do you see what's behind that? Lord, we can't help these people. And if we can't, nobody can. We're the demon caster outers. We're the healers. There's no help for these people. Do you also see what's behind here that's got more of an edge to it? Let me paint the picture for you in modern terms. The summer intern walks by the CEO's corner office pokes his head in and says, oh, by the way, I think you ought to give people longer on those quarterly reports. And by the way, you ought to shut down this division over here. What? Who are you? Exactly. Do you see what success has done to them? They want to give Jesus orders. Now, before we judge the apostles and see how dumb they are, let's examine our own hearts. Do we want to tell Jesus what to do with His kingdom based on what we think and the success that we have and how we think things should be done? If we're honest with ourselves, we do. But you see, this is a deadly disease. It's why Jesus is testing them. It's why Jesus will test you throughout your Christian life because you see... It is easy to be puffed up. And we need to be reminded that we really don't have it all together. That we really aren't the end all and be all. Jesus challenges them. He looks right at them and He says with great emphasis, you provide food for them. Can you imagine this? They know there's no solution. They tell Jesus what to do and Jesus comes right back to them and He says, you have to do it. And you can imagine the process that's going through their minds now. There's no way this will happen. There's no way we can do this. There are so many people. I can't even begin to think of where to start. And that's when Jesus has them exactly where He wants them. Seeing that the problem is bigger than them. And that they don't have the means to solve the problem. There's a wonderful vignette in John chapter 6 where Philip looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, do you know it would cost eight months wages just to buy the food? Let alone to get it here. And Jesus says exactly. 
It's not about you and what you think you can do. This is beyond you. You need to stop looking to yourself. And you need to start looking to me. And that's where we see the sufficiency of the king. Jesus is more sufficient than we think. He begins with such patience. He says to the apostles, okay, we're going to take care of this now. Have the people sit in groups of fifties. He's patient with this crowd. After all, this crowd has just followed on after him and now they're looking for a free lunch. He's patient with the apostles who have been rude to him and who think this is a desperate situation. But Jesus solves and resolves the problem. He has set the stage for the apostles to see their inadequacy and to see that they must look to the Lord God. And what he does is he has them sit to eat in groups of fifties. Now, do you remember from previous weeks how people ate in the ancient world? that they didn't sit at a table in chairs, they laid down. So Jesus has them lay down in groups on the grass. Does that remind you of anything? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Jesus is showing them a visible representation of Psalm 23. Of His provision for them. That He is their shepherd and they will never want, no matter how dire the situation is. Because He's enough. He will never abandon them. He will never leave them. And then He begins this wonderful, miraculous, creative power as He says, bring me these loaves and these fish. And... You have to imagine the scene. Jesus breaking the loaves and putting them in baskets. And the apostles take it out and go feed some people and they come back empty. And Jesus is full. And then they go and they feed and they come back empty. And Jesus is full. Over and over and over again. It is this great grand combination of miraculous, creative power as He creates food for 5,000. But do you see what is happening here? There's no fanfare. There's no thunderclap. There is no lightning bolt. There is no bread raining down from heaven. It is an ordinary thing that you or I might do that is coupled with the miraculous creative power of Jesus. That's how Jesus works. Don't spend your whole life looking for a thunderclap and a lightning bolt. Look for Jesus in the ordinary of life. That's where His miracles are found. As He provides day after day after day. He's sufficient, not just to feed 5,000, but for you and for me, He is sufficient for our salvation. No matter how dire your need is, no matter how lost you feel you are, no matter what you have done, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to make you right with God. There is no lack to be made up. Jesus is sufficient. And He's sufficient for our lives too. There is no heart so broken 
There is no loneliness so deep. There is no depression so dark that Jesus is not sufficient. There is no struggle with sin so hard. There is no relationship so marred. But that Jesus is sufficient for you and for me. You see, this is the lesson of the internship. Not just the apostles, but yours and mine. That Jesus is sufficient. That He is overwhelmingly sufficient. Do you see what happens here in verse 17? The apostles have just said, Lord, you're crazy. There's only five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus feeds thousands. And what happens afterwards? And they all ate and were satisfied. No one said, I didn't get enough. My two older brothers ate it all. No one said, I got room for one more piece of pie. They're all satisfied. But then, what was left over was picked up. And it was 12 baskets full. More than they had to start with. And I don't think a coincidence that there is exactly the number of baskets left over as the number of doubting apostles. You see, Jesus makes it very personal. Do not doubt Him. He is not here to minimize your problems. He is here to tell you that He is greater than your problems. Let's pray.